Worship makes me sweat. Anybody else? Just, okay, come folks. All right, that's good, man. I love it. Man, I love that last song. I love, uh, love image-driven songs. I love, I mean, that's pulled right out of Revelation 4 and 5. If you ever want to, like, catch up on your own and uh, do a little, ex- little after-class homework kind of thing. And just, I, to me, it's helpful to realize, you know, God gave you an imagination for a reason. And it wasn't just so you could use it for the world. And so he just fills, uh, that passage is filled with these pictures of Jesus with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. And uh, that is a great place to worship. Wouldn't you say it would be a better place to worship in heaven rather than in the, even the senior center? I love being with you guys, but worship is about entering a whole new place. And so I hope, I hope you get to do that today. I hope that God blessed you with that today, and I hope he continues to do that uh, for you. So today um, we're on... The third sermon in a series of four. Next week, Reverend Most Holy Father Longfellow is going to wrap it up for me, do the fourth sermon in the series. But today's title is, I Can't Do It On My Own. And I know you guys are already totally stoked about this message. You're going, oh man, I wish he'd have posted that one online so I'd known to stay home because I can do it on my own, you know. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Several years ago, my wife and I were playing at church in Otis, Colorado, which is a very small town, 40 miles south of Sterling, Colorado, and about 450 people in the town. And we were building a church, and one summer, uh, not unlike this one, <laughs> we, uh, we built a church with, uh, it was like 10 mission teams. Huh? How many? Huh? 10 mission teams came in that year. We had a mission team every week. And we were on a really tight schedule, and God blessed us with a, a volunteer general contractor, and he coordinated pretty much everything. Uh, but, you know, I was a lot younger then, and, uh, you know, I don't know how you guys were when you were younger, or some of you guys that are younger, but I was a little bit foolish and a whole lot aggressive, and I have mellowed over the years, <laughs> believe it or not. And so, uh, you know, we had 10 weeks, and I had this schedule of how it had to go down in my head. Now, I was, and, and, you know, all honesty and fairness to myself, it was a very busy time in our lives uh, to do this, and and so we had mission teams come in. The first one, through the winter, we built the basement that the church was going to sit on. And then a mission team came in and built the floor. And then another one came in and built the walls and the roof and all this kind of stuff. It was really cool to watch it happen. But we got down to somewhere in there, week six or seven, and we had the guy come in to lay carpet. And the problem was, was that the week before, that team, the last thing they were able to accomplish was to hang the drywall, not finish the drywall. So uh, the carpet's going down, and I, in my infinite wisdom, decided that if we really tried really, really hard, we could get the drywall done over the weekend. This was a 10,000-square-foot structure. I forgot to mention that. All of you are laughing, but I took myself very seriously at the time. And I remember my family, and we had uh, five boys that were big enough to help at home, maybe, maybe four that were big enough to help, but we still had the fifth one in there. Uh, and my worship pastor's family, and he had five children, and so that was a lot of the church right there. Everybody that was in leadership, we were there over the weekend trying to mud walls and all this kind of stuff. And what we did was make a really big mess. And we called in a guy, finally, we said, well, we can't do this. And we called in a guy to help us. And it was so bad, he came in, looked at it, and said, no, I can't help you. <laughs> I am not good at admitting that I need help. I'm sure you guys are. 
All the guys in the house, you're like, oh, yeah, I always, I always ask for directions when I'm lost. I don't drive around until I find something I see and I know I've seen before. I don't do that. I ask for help. Uh, I don't. Or I, I'm getting a little bit more wisdom as I age, and uh, so maybe I do a little bit more. Uh, but today's message is about getting the help we need and, and asking for help, I guess. You know, the first message is about there's got to be more, that the Christian life isn't just you know, a very busy worldly life with added church stuff onto it. It's got to be more than that. Also, last week we talked about regrets and how regrets have to be dealt with and we need to, to let them go. And so today we come to this place where we just have to admit that we, we need some help in life, especially, especially spiritually, especially to grow in our faith. We need someone to, to help us along the way. We need God's help and so forth. So today I'm going to draw some things out of a story that may not seem to fit at first, but bear with me. Now look at Luke 18. I want to read verse 9 through 13. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and pray this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven. As he prayed, instead he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner." In this story, you see two men alone, two people alone. One is alone and confident. One is alone and in shame. But you should notice that they're both alone when we first meet them in the story. And in this story, I see, I want to point out a few things. Um, we've already, I guess we begin with the idea of it's hard to ask for help. And in this story, we see why it's hard to ask for help. We see these two guys. The Pharisee and the, uh, the tax collector standing there. The Pharisee's the guy, there's all kinds of helpless, and this is the kind of helpless that says, I don't need help. Think about the Pharisee. He's standing there, and he's standing in judgment over this tax collector. Boy, and I know this really isn't part of the sermon, but I just, whenever I, I encounter this story, I just, I don't ever want to be the Pharisee dude. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the one who stands over anybody and stands in judgment of their life. But it's so easy to be the Pharisee, really, because I can find one little bitty spark of an area in my life that I feel like I'm in control of and then stand in judgment of somebody else. I am so good. I, I, you know, I struggle with my weight. Actually, I don't struggle with my weight. I like being fat, but I, you know, <clears throat> that's right, man. No, I'm just kidding. And, uh, but, you know, I'll go on a diet or I'll get, I'll start, because I work out a lot. Underneath this fat man is a very ripped dude. I just like to keep my six-pack in a nice chest. Um, <laughs> sorry. I know several of you guys are going, I'm using that this week. <laughs> so I'll start working out. But I don't know about you, but I'll start working out. I've said this before. I'll start working out. I'll go walk in. I'll lift weights and I'll eat a salad. One salad. And, um, and then I'll be out walking and I'll see someone else, you know, driving down the road, eating a pizza off their belly, drinking a Diet Coke. And I go, that person needs to get in shape. <laughs> do you ever do that? 
You look so spiritual right now. You're like, oh, no, I never, never do that. I don't ever want to be the Pharisee guy. And the Pharisee guy is just standing here, and he's praying. That's, that's a religious thing to do. I mean, right? I mean, people look at people who just go to prayer and go to church and do the religious stuff, and we see those and consider those good people. But here's the thing. This guy is standing in judgment, and, and he's praying to a God that in his mind, he doesn't actually need. You see, the Pharisees have this, they had all these laws they kept. If you just took the Old Testament law, there's 613 laws throughout the books of Moses, okay? Ten of those being the Ten Commandments. 365 of them are negative, 248 are, are positive commands, okay? So, but 613. But then the, the, the lawyers, the scribes, took that 613 laws and they began to interpret it, say, well, it says this, but it means that. And they turned it into a whole other book that, of, of things that had to be obeyed in order to actually keep those laws. So basically what I'm saying is this Pharisee had this self-generated righteousness. He was keeping a lot of laws that men had written about God's law and yet in truth, he wasn't actually even keeping God's law because he's standing in judgment of a fellow human being. His neighbor, as Jesus so eloquently pointed in one other story. And so the Pharisee's standing here and he's thinking to himself, man, I keep the law, I'm a good guy, I tithe. You know, because of all of the things I do, God likes me. I, I don't really need God's help for God to like me. I don't, I don't need it. Self-sufficiency is good to a point. We all need to take care of ourselves to a degree. But that attitude of I got this, I'll do this, it's not only not healthy, it's actually destructive. And Guys, if you, if you want to watch your family slide down a hill quickly as a dad, just take on the I can do this on my own attitude. You will alienate your wife and you will be an alien to your kids. They will not know what's going on with you. If that sounded like the voice of experience, it's because it was. So here's a guy saying, I don't really need God's help. But then there's another guy alone. And I know he's the hero of the story, but before he's the hero, there's a lesson you need to see. He's over there. Tax collectors, I mean, do you like IRS agents? You know, it was even more violent in his time, and I won't go into the details. Let's just say the Jews hated tax collectors because they were the enemy, even more so than an IRS agent it would be considered today. This tax collector standing there, and he's, he's under the weight of his guilt and shame. That's a terrible place to be, isn't it? And, and this just to throw like a primer out. There is no reason for you to live there, by the way but we'll get to that part. He's standing there under his guilt and shame and he's beating his chest and he is all alone thinking about all of the horrible things he's done. Now, I, it may be hard to see this. It's easy to see pride in the Pharisee because when you see this Pharisee, you see a guy who's like very full of himself, very self-sufficient and basically he lives his life in a manner that says, I want people to know I'm awesome. And think that I'm awesome. But when you come to the tax collector, you come to a different kind of pride. One we don't even consider pride. 
Because there's one pride that says, I want people to know I'm awesome. And there's another pride that says, I don't want people to know I'm a loser. It's still pride. One is the pride of self-sufficiency. The other is the pride of shame. Both of them are hiding. One guy's hiding behind his religion. The other guy's just trying not to be seen at all. Now, we can identify with one or both of those streams of pride. So I want you to see that here's a guy that is, is on the verge of self-pity and just wallowing in shame. Now, it can be a good thing, like we talked about last week, to realize that I have issues, I have regrets, and I need to deal with them. The moment of clarity is very powerful, but not for the purpose of wallowing in shame. God does not want you to come in contact with your sin so you can just wallow in it and feel bad for the rest of your life. If your understanding of a spiritual experience is feeling condemned before God, that is an unhealthy and absolutely incorrect understanding. Every person I've ever, most people I've known that have had a, a significant spiritual encounter with God have come out of it with two viewpoints. One is this. When I was in God's presence, I saw the shame and the power of my sin. And in that scene, I felt God's incredible love. That's the value of understanding our own sinfulness is being freed from it and experiencing the fact that God loves me. He loves me. Man, God's awesome. So here's this guy, one guy, but two guys alone, two guys alone, two guys doing it on their own. One guy's self-sufficient, one guy is too ashamed to seek help. One guy, I don't need help, one guy, I don't deserve help. Now, I don't know if that's you or not, but we begin to lay a foundation, we kind of understand in that, why it's hard to ask for help. One of these is not better than the other, is something we need to understand. It's not, it's not really humility to walk around under the weight of guilt and shame. That kind of drives me crazy. You may not notice, but I'm not one of those preacher guys who's like I'm barely even serious most of the time. I mean, I, I just, have you ever had a pastor and you like, you look like his first residence was actually in the wrath of God somewhere? I met a guy once, he said, I had a, a nun who was a teacher in my high school and she taught about hell like she used to live there. <sighs> I, I used to tease, uh, my first churches, I was a lot more brash when I was younger. My, my first church, one of my first churches, I told the deacons one day, or it's a joke I would share, I'd say, man, that, did, that guy looks like he was weaned on a dill pickle. <laughs> the, I did not plan jokes today, they just show up. <laughs> Good or bad, mostly bad. I'm just saying, man, if your spirituality wears a frown, you might be missing it. And so, it's hard to get help because it's hard to get out from behind our mask. But here's the second thing. God is eager to help. God wants to help you. He wants to enter this situation that you're dealing with and walk with you through that situation. God, why, where does this idea of God come from that like God is 
this stern, kind of cruel-hearted, out to get you. I mean, where's this idea come from that he's kind of over-creation, looking for the things that you've done wrong, waiting to get you? Where does that come from? I think we know where it comes from. It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from light. It comes from darkness. It comes from the enemy. That's not God at all. That's not who God is. God is a God who does love you. Yes, he has expectations. Yes, he's going to change your life. Yes, it's going to look like it gets wrecked from time to time because sometimes you gotta break something down to rebuild it and God is building you into something. When we talk about grace all the time and mostly we hear it defined as unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Well, let me tell you something and Graham Cook teaches this so well. The truth is if grace, if all grace is is undeserved favor, then Jesus never got any. The Bible says he was filled with grace and truth. But he, he deserved everything he got. So grace has to be more than a salve on all my mistakes and all my shame. It has to be more than that. What is grace? Well, give me, let me expand the definition for you. In fact, I don't have enough time to define grace. I think the, the definition of grace is infinite. I think I live in it every moment of every day in grace, whether I realize it or not. In fact, I don't think there are good days or bad days in my life. They're just all grace days. So what is grace? Consider this definition. Grace is God's presence in my life to transform me into the person that he sees when he looks at me. That's a good definition. I wish I could say it's original, but it's not. But it will be next time. I'll not give credit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what God sees when he looks at you? He sees Jesus. He sees I'll tell you what he sees. He sees, well done, my good and faithful servant. He doesn't just see, can I, can I just say, all the mistakes and all the regrets, he died for those so we wouldn't have to look at them anymore. They're over. Even if you're looking on the backside of this going, well, I still got a few mistakes ahead. It's all right. You weren't even born yet when Jesus died for you. God knows how to take care of that. He knows how to prepay for stupid. So when God looks at you, all that stuff's drowned in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing songs about the blood. It might sound a little weird if you haven't been to church before or very much, and we sing about the blood of Jesus, but that's why, because everything that's wrong with us is drowned and buried and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see what I was. He doesn't even see the stupid things I'm going to do, and I'm sure there'll be many in my case. He sees the day I stand before him, and he says, this is what I meant to start with. You are what I meant from the first day I said, let there be. That's what he means for you. And that's what grace is in your life. Grace is God transforming you. It isn't just a salve on your mistakes. It's transformation to change you into God's vision for you. Amen? Man, God's good. Okay, so God's eager to help you. He wants to be a part of your life. And so everything I can do to remove that shame, I want to do that. Let me, but let me move you into a place. So another thought. Let's go to 1 Peter 5, 5, okay? Peter says this. Now, we talked about Peter last week. You guys remember talking about Peter last week? Peter, our guy? 
Peter who said, Jesus, I'll do whatever you want. I'll even die for you. And then not even 24 hours later, just like a few hours later, he's saying, I don't even know the guy. I never heard of Jesus. That guy, 1 Peter 5, 5. Dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter got it. I mean, yeah, he had to go through a, a furious, vicious regret to get it. But he understood. He came to a place where he realized that when, when he was proud, when Peter was the one saying, I got this, I can do this. Because isn't that exactly what he said to Jesus right before he denied him? I can do this. I will, I will never leave you. That was the pride of Peter. And God resists that. Like God has an allergy to pride. I mean, he's like, ooh, you know. But the humble... The humble, God just sweeps in, bends over backwards, works with. Peter saw this. Humility brings God close. That's why it's always safe to take risk with God. Because even if it doesn't work out, even if you take a risk and get totally embarrassed, all that really happens is you get humbled and God shows up. Because when you get humbled, God shows up. Some of you are in a place of humbling right now. Don't despise it. In fact, it's the beginning of a new thing. I, I don't know, that thought just hit me, so I think I needed to say it. Whatever the humility is you're enduring today, it's the beginning of a new thing. God's laying the foundation for something new. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Father. So we move into a place of humility, and when we move in that place of humility, God shows up. It's an old story. I don't know how much time I got. Oh, well, I got three hours, man. Good deal. Father's Day, none of these guys want to eat. <laughs> anyway, when I was a kid, um, I, my mom and dad, it was, it was a long time ago, guys. I mean, we used to listen to music on these little plastic things that spun on a table. <laughs> Sounds weird, I know. Really hard to jog and listen to those. <laughs> they skipped a lot. But uh, we did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going off a tangent. Do you remember that when I, when I was a teenager, I'm sorry, this is so funny, we would actually walk around with a boom box on our shoulder and the bigger the better, right? Anybody else do? Oh yeah, oh yeah, some boom box. Nowadays, music is on this like microscopic chip. You just stick it in your head and listen or something. I don't know, what is wrong with you people? Don't you even love music? If it's not worth carrying heavy weight, it's not worth listening to. That's where the idea of heavy metal came from. Oh, this is heavy. I'm sorry. I just... So when I was a kid, though, we, uh, my dad and mom had this, uh, some albums, and uh, there was this group back then called the Kingsmen. I, I think they're still around, but probably not the original singers. And uh, that's where I learned to sing. I would, I, would, uh, I would literally lay in front of the speaker and just sing along with the Kingsmen. And, um, but they used to tell this story I'd like to share with you that uh, I, I bet I listened to it a thousand times as a child, um, you know, somewhere between ages of seven and, and 13. But they tell a story about a, a preacher. He was an evangelist. And he, um, he just finished a meeting and he was going home. It had been a series of meetings and he was tired. And this was back in the days when people rode a lot of trains around back east, you know. And that, that day he got off, he was exhausted from the meetings. And he just wanted to sit in that seat of that train and just go home, not worry about it. But as he's sitting there, he hears some uh, an occasional sniffle next to him, and he looks, and there's a young man in his mid to early 20s sitting there, and he's just looking out the window, and every now and then a, 
A tear would stream down his cheek, and he could tell the guy was hurting. So he turned to him and said, you know, son, you know, different time, and he said, "Um, I'm a preacher. I'm a minister, and I can tell you're hurting. Could you... Can I help? And the young man started to, to tell him his story. He said, you know, preacher, when I was a, a young man, I lived at home, and my dad and I, we had a, a terrible time together. We fought all the time. I, I did whatever I wanted to do. And, and one day, my dad and I had it out, and I punched him. And, and my dad looked at me that day, and he said, son, I, I love you, but I don't know. We, your mother and I, don't know what to do with you, and you're going to have to leave. He said, Bridget, that was two years ago. And in the last two years, I've done everything I wanted to do and experienced everything in life that that brings. And about two weeks ago, I was in this little town and walking down a street, and there was a church having some kind of meeting. The back door was open, and I was feeling pretty lost, and so I just slipped in. I sat on the back row, and I listened to the guy preaching, and the guy said that God loved me. And then it didn't matter what I had done, that God's love could reach out to me. And he said, you know what? I believed him, preacher. And I walked down that threadbare aisle, and I encountered the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. And I was changed. He said, that, that day I wrote my dad a letter. and said, Dad, I, I want to come home. I've met Jesus Christ. And I wonder if I could come home and... The preacher said to him, he said, well, son, this is a different time, no email. Your dad's not going to have time to respond to that. And the young man said, well, I know, I put in the letter that if dad would tie a, out next to our house is a big old apple tree. It's right next to the train track and the bend. And if they just tie an old rag in that tree, I'd know it's okay to come home. He said, preacher, as I sit here, I remember the things I did. How I hurt my mom and dad and how I broke their heart. My home is right on the tracks, just up around the next bend. I'm I'm too scared to look. And I wonder if you'd look and see if there's a rag in that tree when we round the next bend. Preacher got up and took out a handkerchief and wiped off the old train window and started looking for that tree. Young man sitting there in tears, moments of remorse, experiencing those regrets. Pretty soon, across that preacher's face spread this big old grin. He said, son, you don't have a thing to worry about. That apple tree is in full bloom. And underneath it, there's this old man and woman waving a big old bed sheet. (laughs) Some people don't think God is like that. They think they got to get better to come back. They think they got to fix themselves before God will even begin to fix them. But I want you to know, God wants in your life, he wants to change the situation. He wants to enter into what you're going through. He loves you. He's a good God. Amen? So we come back to our tax collector. Now if I could review verse 13 to 14. The tax collector stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. God, 
Be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, the issue of forgiveness, the issue of moving on, the issue of getting out of the sorrow that you're in is an issue of turning to God. And when you turn to God, when you do that in humility and in repentance, God sends help. And that help has a name. I say it all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it until they throw dirt in my face. Jesus is the answer. You see, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came in Matthew 123, Matthew quotes the prophet. It says, the, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It may be hard to imagine a scenario in your life where you are not alone, where God is with you. And it I know it doesn't always feel like he's there. You have to understand, though, God's word, what God says, is more important than what you feel. It's more true than the circumstances you live. And, and we cannot, you cannot, if you keep allowing the circumstances of your life to tick, dictate your faith, you're going to live in fear and in shame. You will never be free. You have to learn to take God's word over what you see, over what you experience. And the truth is, is that God is with us. You know, back in 1969, I think it was, the Russians got an astronaut into space before we did. We were really mad about it. No, 61. It was long. It was long. We didn't get someone in space till 60, or on the moon till 69. When that cosmonaut went there, he's, he's orbiting Earth. And he says, I don't see God anywhere. And Nikita Khrushchev quoted him, you know, it was a big news deal. C.S. Lewis came out at the time with a response. He said, (laughs) he was a master of analogy, (laughs) as the line which in the wardrobe will clearly display. But he said, "If, if if Shakespeare, I mean, if Hamlet were to encounter Shakespeare, he would not do so. By looking at the rafters of the theater, the only way Hamlet would ever meet Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. That's how we encounter God. He said that's exactly what Jesus did. He wrote himself into our story. God's with us, but that's not all. He isn't just with us. He didn't just come out of here. He didn't just come to earth and say, hey, look, that's how it should be done. Try. Yeah, I would totally fail. Any, that's religious systems that teach people that Jesus died to save us, now you try to be good, frustrate me because I'm really lousy at being good. And I know you're saying, yeah, but you're a preacher. Yeah, I'm a naughty one. <laughs> and I'm honest about that, okay? Jesus didn't just come to show us the way. He came to be with us and he came to be for us. For us. Think about that. For us. I tell you, that's one of the greatest things about being a dad, isn't it, man? To get to be for your kids. Like nobody else could be for them, but to get to be for them. My wife and I were having a discussion about one of our kids one time, and, uh, and she taught me a lesson. 
Okay, it might have been an argument, but we'll talk about that later. We're having an argument about, I mean, a discussion about one of our children. And she said, you know what? Our son may have done something wrong, but I want him to know that we are for him. Jesus is for me. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that he came. It says in verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Verse 5 of that same chapter tells us how Jesus came. But then in verse 8, it says why Jesus came. He came to do, to go through what you and I go through, to suffer what we suffer. He came to know our existence, not just as the writer of a story, but as a character in the story that he wrote. And so Jesus is for you in this life. So what does that look like? What kind of bearing does that have? How am I supposed to move from this place of self-sufficiency, the place of shame, into a place of strength and victory? How do I become the person God sees me as, sees that I will be? Now, I'm going to use a word that we use all the time, and we use it so much it's almost cliched now, but it's so critical, I don't know another word to use. And it's the word of relationship. Jesus is with us and he's for us. And he comes to this earth and he comes into our hearts to be in relationship with us. Relationship. Relationship. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? People who are in a good relationship, I'm in, I'm in a great relationship. People who are in bad ones, they use other words. This relationship with Jesus is a a good relationship. The thought I I read yesterday, I was was reading about a pastor who um, reminded me of myself and reasons I don't want to go into. But he made this statement. He said, I had an encounter with God in which I realized that I was living for God. And I needed to be living from God. When I live for God, when I have a good day, I feel okay. And when I have a bad day, I feel like I'm less of a Christian. Anybody else ever in the room have a day where you're like, I don't even know if I'm saved today? Every day is a grace day. God's love doesn't change. Now, we put stuff in our relationships sometimes that block us from him. Distract us would be a better term. I mean, we should spend time in worship and in his presence. And we do the Netflix thing instead because we think somehow that will fill us. And it doesn't because all the shows stink and we won't admit it to ourselves. There's this relationship where God speaks to us through his word, through our prayer times, through other people's lives. That's through other people's words. That's kind of... I got this vision, this heart thing I want for our church. I, I, I want a culture. Um, I'll use the word of encouragement, but I, I want a culture where God gives you an encouragement to, for someone else and you just give it to them. Yes. And we begin to see, it's really hard to see God's heart for me. But when someone else sees God's heart for me, and tells me it's easier to believe. A, a few months ago, I was at a worship service in uh, Heartland, Missouri, and I, I may have mentioned this before, and forgive me if I have, but 
It just fits right here. I was in a worship service and we were just praising the Lord, getting ready for a long sermon, just like you did this morning. And this, this lady, out of the blue, right in the middle of worship service, you don't do that, you don't interrupt worship for a word from God? No, I'm just kidding. She walks up, I promise you, she didn't know me from Adam. I mean, I, I was not, God, this is as dressed up as I get for church, man. I mean, I'm not a suit and tie guy. I mean, occasionally. I just dodged a joke there. Anyway. I'm just standing there worshiping. This lady doesn't know me from Adam, just walks up to me, puts her hand on my shoulder, and she says, oh, man of God. She could have stopped right there because I knew it was from my father, and my father had just called me a man of God. Now, that may not mean much to you, but right then I just wanted to hit my knees because my father called me a man of God. I have never felt worthy of that title in my life. You'll, you'll, you, people call me pastor. I, I try not to resist it, but I never have felt worthy of it. She said, man of God, and she gave me some, a word about her sending me. God was sending me someone to help me hold up my arms. A, a drawing off a picture of Moses and Aaron and her. And uh, I was just wrecked right there. Because my father, God, sent someone into my life to see something about me that I have a hard time seeing. I'm sharing that with you in great transparency. I don't want you to read anything into it. I just want you to know I have a heart where God's people can see for each other and help each other see. See what God sees in them. I think that is part of what church is, and I think it's so powerful. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. It's one of my favorite texts. Come to me, all of you who are weary, carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus knows what it's like to be me. He knows what it's like to suffer and struggle. He, never, he was never defeated by sin, but he was tempted by sin. And so you could really say that Jesus knows a lot more about the sin struggle than I do because I've never resisted long enough to not be tempted again. So Jesus knows where I've been, knows what I've been through, and he wants to invite me not into a just go out there and work for me relationship. He invites me into a relationship where we go together and he does his thing through me. Have you read the Gospels? His thing is awesome. He changes things. You may be in a situation right now. You, in fact, what's probably going on in a number of lives in this room is you either have a situation or you are just undergoing and approaching life from the perspective of, I got this, I can do this. Your father stands over you and he loves you unconditionally, but he cannot step into your, he will not step into your situation. 
until and as long as you have the strength on your own to do it. Don't we do that with our children, dads? Say, oh, you think you're big enough. Well, go ahead. Until they learn that they're not, and some of them don't. Some of them take a while. So, why not back off? Why not stop pressing so hard in your own strength? Stop trying to solve your own problems. Taking on the responsibility of the world, trying to rescue everybody. Jesus is the rescuer. Let him do it. Why not back off and let Jesus be Lord of your life? Some of us need to evict ourselves from our own Godhead. Right? We need to step off the throne in our own life and realize who really is God. I'm not saying do it. I'm not, I'm not promoting an approach where you just go through life and let everybody else take your responsibilities. I'm not doing that at all. But I am saying this. Take on your responsibilities, but stop trying to control everybody else's. I don't know who that was for, but there it was free. You can't live other people's lives for them. And so... <clears throat> Back off. Let step into a place of humility. Kevin Redmond's hamstring literally snapped in that race. I don't know if you've ever pulled a hamstring before. His father came on the track and helped him to the end. I'm going to ask my musicians and my prayer team to come forward. Guys, that father is an earthly father. Loved his son on earth enough to make sure he finished a race that he set out to race. Everybody in this room is in their own race. In a sense, we're all in it together, and in a sense, we're all in an individual race. Your father is not going to let you go through this race alone. He's not gonna let you dissolve in tears of failure on the course of this life. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to bring you safely into victory powerfully into the vision he has for you today as we sing i think worship is so powerful it's becoming more and more powerful in my life and as we sing we got folks that are will that are ready to pray on one side or the other here i just don't want you to go through something you alone that you don't have to so these folks are here to pray and i'm going to pray right now father i just ask you and you know, I ask you to do something you, you are just excited and eager to do. To walk into your children's hearts and lives, into these dads' lives, and to them, to bring them into a place, a place of peace, a place of living from God. Some are probably on the verge of burnout in some area of their life. Burnout is inevitable when all I have is my strength. And it's impossible when I live from God's. I pray, Lord, that you'd encourage each life in this room. They all have ministries. You love people through them, whether it's their own wives and children. And many of them and more of them, you're going to love the lost hurting of this world through. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today. You'd come alongside that every soul in this room know would know There is no too far with you. 
And there is no path back. There is only the immediate, Lord, I surrender. Lord, no wallowing today. Sorrow over what's been, okay. Humility over what it was. And then you show up. And you heal. And you restore. You make streams in the desert. You make places and ways where there's no way. You cut paths through mountains and you split seas. And Lord, in this room, there are those who face things they have no idea. And some of them have tried, they've stopped trying to worry because there's, so, there's no hope. So they just try and have what they can today. Lord, if you would help us to walk alongside you. Let no one leave alone today. In the name of Jesus, would you stand? Let's see. Yeah. Mm-hmm.